Welcome to episode 19 of Hearing is Believing, a podcast where we discuss different topics that center around our Catholic faith. So like always, just wanted to remind everybody that we are not experts, we are not theologians, and we do not speak on behalf of the Catholic Church. We're just two sisters that really like talking about this stuff and wanted to share it with you. So Andrea, how has your week been? What's new with you? I got my first COVID vaccine. I know we mentioned last week that you guys finally had um, got it scheduled. So I, I mean, yeah. you guys as in like Julia too. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm glad. I feel like I'm, I'm knowing more and more and more people who have had like the vex, like all of the vaccines or at least one. So it's just, it makes me so happy to see that we're finally on the right track to get out of this pandemic. So hopefully everything keeps going smoothly. We're, we're on the right track, and I just want to share my experience real quick with everyone. It wasn't bad. The process was really great. The nurses were, like, getting us in and out. Like, they were fast. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. I did feel the needle. I did feel the serum go in. Well, it's a shot. You always feel the needle. Yes, but I don't always feel the serum as it's injected into my arm. Baby. But I have a very low pain tolerance, so maybe that's why I yeah. felt it all a little bit more than probably you or our mom did. But just so you know, it's not bad. My arm's a little sore. I like you're like, it's not bad, but it's really sore, but it's not bad. But, you know, I felt it, but it's not bad. <laughs> very convincing. <laughs> I think my tetanus shot was worse. Yeah, yeah. I actually just got my tetanus shot like a booster i guess uh today and yeah that hurt (laughs) that was way worse than the covid vaccine um but you know what like if if you could do a tetanus shot which we've been doing for years and years and years everyone's had a tetanus shot yeah so it's it's fine yeah yeah um just wait for your second shot though because i i mean it doesn't hurt but the side effects definitely were there i know for me i felt pretty crummy um, like the next day and so did mom and a couple other people I've, I've spoken to as well like they the, it always varies but sleepiness is always the thing I've heard that's like in common with everybody I was super sleepy yeah I think mom slept the whole day and she had a fever too I've heard fevers oh, yeah. are are common as well so fatigue and fever I already know I gotta keep an eye out for so but if you think about it in the grand scheme of things like one day of feeling kind of crummy is like really it's, it's a really small price to pay so i think it really in the grand scheme of things wasn't bad you know just take that day off prepare yourself to feel a little achy you know get some gatorade some tylenol and you'll be fine we'll be prepped all right so yep that was the big news for for me <laughs> what would you like to share to me so what's new i have two things i want to share so one is i have a very special guest with me today during my uh recording and that is my incredibly clingy cat momo right now i'm literally cradling him in my lap and he has his head pressed against my arm it's really adorable and also very nerve-wracking because i know he's gonna wake up at any moment and just start crying because he literally thinks he's a human we should post a picture of them i think i will i'll post a picture on our social media because they are my favorite things like ever and 
I really shouldn't call them things, but <laughs> they're, they're your children. Yeah, exactly. They're my little fur babies. So yeah, that's that's exciting news number one. I have my first guest. And exciting news number two, and I know you're really excited about this too, Andrea. Yes. We had our first fan mail. Yes. It just it warms our hearts. Oh my goodness. We are so happy and at the same time feels so bad because we unfortunately didn't see this uh this email for a a while like what a few weeks weeks? yeah i feel (sighs) so horrible about this so periodically we will review our inbox Mm -hmm. i personally am in a bad habit of not checking my spam folder regularly Mm -hmm. and lo and behold there it was we really felt so bad the moment i like so the thing is, and this is why I think it's so crazy, and I was I was telling Julio this, and I'm like, it was meant to be. We were me- God wanted us to find that email because my computer glitched. I was trying to get into my own personal email, and I guess I hit some weird button. I did something. I don't know how, but suddenly I got into our podcast email. Yeah, which we share. Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah which we share, and that's how I, I saw it. I'm like, wait a second. This isn't what I was looking for what is this oh my oh my goodness i was just shocked but yeah god was like okay girls you clearly need some help and just literally put it right in front of us so thank you so much so much we really appreciate your email it made us so happy um and yeah we're gonna be working on a special episode soon so keep an eye out for that yeah well andrea what are you gonna cover today uh, this week, I am taking a little inspiration from last week's episode. So if you remember, mm-hmm. I covered three different churches. I, I did uh, the church that was in Nashville. I I did St. Rita's Church in, in Chicago. And mm-hmm. the third church I did was St. Tribius Catholic Church. And there was no information on that parish, on St. Tribius. I couldn't find any information on their website. I was curious. So this week, I am covering St. Tribius. Oh, exciting. I haven't really, I don't know anything about them either, so I like learning about new saints. That'll be fun. What about you, Tamisa? Today, I'm going to be covering the story of a real-life exorcist named Father Malachi Martin. So I actually really wasn't familiar with him, um, which I am shocked because once I read into, like, all the things he's done, he like he's, he's written so many books. Um, there's a documentary about him, and he really was, like, a big figure for exorcisms and like the awareness about it especially throughout like the 90s so I'm really excited to talk about him um, later on and share some of the really really creepy uh, experiences he had Ooh, I'm excited yeah you better be but let's start with something maybe a little more lighthearted. um Andrea let's let's talk about your saint all right I'm gonna hop right into his story I don't want to talk about what he's the patron saint of until the end. Surprise? Well, no, it's not a surprise, but I think it just, like, encapsulates everything he did. So I'm going to hold it off for for the end. So straight into his little biography story. St. Terribius, or Toribio Alfonso de Mogrovejo. Oh! Yes, he's Spanish. He was born on November 16th. 1538 in Valladolid, Spain, to a noble family. Mm-hmm. St. Tribius was described as a pious child. He would fast at least once a week, 
and would give to the poor and the needy. He even developed a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and would pray the rosary every day. I'd say all around, he was a good kid. He sounds like the ideal son. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. So as he got older, he went to study law and possibly even humanities. There was a little confusion, at least in my research, as to like what he did first. But from what I'm understanding, he studied humanities first, like as a young adult, and then moved into law. And he studied first there in Valladolid, and then he finished his studies at the University of Salamanca. Quick fun fact, the University of Salamanca is the third oldest Western university, as it was founded in 1218, and it's one of the oldest universities in Spain. Wow, 1218. I can't even... It's crazy... But I have a hard time even just, like, fathoming, fathoming? I have a hard time. Picturing it? Imagining. <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time imagining something that old, like, still exists. Does it still exist? I don't know. Do you know? Yeah. I don't know if they still use it as a university. I, I'm not familiar, all that familiar with it. You know what? Let's look. Let me look. That's going to bother me. Yep. The university offers 81 courses. Oh my goodness. So there's there's still a thing. Wow. Imagine going to that school and being like, no big deal. My university is like the old one of the oldest in the country. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. No, it's it's ridiculously old. So I thought that was a really cute fun fact. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. back to St. Trivius. He was such a brilliant student. That he was made professor of law there at the University of Salamanca. And he you know, he was really good at his job. He was uh, honest. He was courageous. And he eventually, in February of 1571, was appointed as the Grand Inquisitor of the Inquisition Court at Granada. And there he was posted for like five years. Oh, wow. His success as a brilliant and wise lawyer started to draw attention. The Archdiocese of Lima in Peru, which was a Spanish colony, needed a new leader, and King Philip II nominated Terribius for the position. As Terribius was a person of strong character and holiness of spirit, it was believed he would be able to heal the scandals that were coming out of that area. Mm-hmm. At first, Tribius was shocked, and then he was having none of it. He began protesting to the king and to the church authorities that he couldn't possibly accept the position. He wasn't even a priest. He started sending letters reminding everyone of the mm-hmm. law that laymen, you know, ordinary men, people who are not uh-huh. ordained, could not be given ecclesiastical duties. He could not be yeah. declared as the Archbishop of Lima. Uh-huh. But guess what? He was overruled, and he was overruled by the Pope. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they wanted him. They wanted him for that role. They did. They really wanted him. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That just speaks volumes of, like, how much they admired him. Because, like, that's just... That's crazy to me. I can't. I can't possibly imagine, like, how you would just, like, pick somebody... That sure they're really good at their job and are very devout, but like if you're not a priest, like 
I don't know if you should be an archbishop, you know? Exactly, exactly. And he was like, no, this isn't right. He would recite law. He would send letters talking about the law. Like, I cannot do this. And the Pope said, screw that. (laughs) Yeah, the Pope said, you're going to do it. So he had no choice but to comply. So Mm -hmm. Terebius was ordained a priest and became a bishop. He was ordained a bishop. In 1581, at the age of 43, was sent to Lima, Peru. Mm-hmm. There in, in, in Peru is where he saw colonialism at its worst. The Spanish conquerors were guilty of every sort of abuse on the enslaved and oppressed natives. Many of the, of the abusers weren't just amongst the, the colonists, but also among the clergy. Mm. So, and it was among the clergy where Terebius first focused his energies and his devotion to fixing the issues and abuses of of, of power. Mm -hmm. So, he began to travel on foot to visit his archdiocese, which was approximately 18,000 square miles. And just for comparison, because I couldn't picture 18,000 square miles in my head, I had to look this up. So for comparison reasons, look at a map of the country of Estonia. Estonia is close to 17,500 square miles. This territory is a little bit bigger than the country of Estonia. And Mm -hmm. listeners, if you're in the U.S., 18,000 square miles is almost half of the size of the state of Indiana. Oh my goodness. So It's huge. And he did this by foot? Yeah, he traveled on foot around his archdiocese. You know they did not have, like, good hiking shoes back in those days. Like, that's not fun. (laughs) No, I was reading. He would walk, sometimes even barefoot, and it's rugged terrain. It's mountainous. He would walk Mm -hmm. in all kinds of weather, so it's not just, like, dirt roads. There's ice. There's snow. It's dangerous. Yeah. And he would mm-hmm. walk his entire, like, you know, assigned area, territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so as he's walking his archdiocese, he began to study the native languages. And at every place he visited, he would stay about two to three days, oftentimes with no food or bed. And as he traveled throughout his archdiocese, he established schools that would teach catechism and the local language. And he built roads, and hospitals. In 1591, he founded the first seminary in the Western Hemisphere, and as a prerequisite to join the seminary, Terebius mandated that all hopeful seminarians had to learn the the native languages as part of their formation. That's really nice. I think that's a really good sentiment to, to have in that approach, because Definitely. I mean, especially in um, like Mexican history, the the clergy would basically make natives learn Spanish and only speak Spanish. Like it, it was very much like a, a colonial way of thinking of like you need yeah. to integrate into our culture. You need to abandon yours and starting with, you know, your language. Yeah. So I think that is that's so compassionate to make the the seminarians also learn the native language yeah and not just 
the Spaniard borns. Um, he would also encourage the natives to take religious orders and to teach the Catholic faith to others in their native mm-hmm. languages. So he's he's not focused so much on integrating Spanish culture, but more so the religion. Yeah. So with all these changes, Terribius was resented by many of the local priests and colonists who did not like what he was doing. He faced a lot of criticism, but he was backed up by Spain in the form of the Viceroy Francisco de Toledo. And as Viceroy, he acted on behalf of King Philip II, who I want to remind everyone sent Terribius to Peru because reform was needed. There were scandals Mm -hmm. because of the abuse and everything that was going on, and they needed that to all calm down. He sent Terribius, so he had their backing. Yeah, that definitely is, like, I I think that's to be expected. Like, people aren't going to like you when you are, like, coming in being like, okay, like, clean up your mess, we're fixing this, so... Yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and to probably make things worse for him, or at least didn't help his cause with the local clergy, is that he endorsed the Council of Trent's decree to excommunicate priests who were engaged in business ventures that exploited natives. So <gasps> Wow. Yeah. That's really, like, yeah, that's, like, re- really revolutionary for that time. <laughs> I know, and it's 1500s. Yeah. And sp- that that reform that progressive mindset that he had it was crazy um so so to the native peruvians tribius was a herald of the gospel he viewed their lives as more precious as more valuable than the silver and gold that were being mined out of the country mm-hmm. so it's huge for for them so they felt that love that he cared about them yeah he was their hero yeah he was For the next 25 years, St. Trebius traveled throughout his diocese, doing about three total trips. So just imagine going throughout that area, half the size of the state of Indiana, three times in over the next Mm -hmm. 25 years. That's a lot of walking. He would go on foot to reach all these remote villages to see each parish to review the state of the community, the health of the community, make sure that each parish had the missile that the Pope had mandated about catechism, making sure they were teaching it in Spanish and in the local native language. Mm-hmm. He essentially unified the church uh, in Peru. Mm-hmm. However, all good things must come to an end. In 1606, during one of his pastoral visits, St. Terebius contracted a fever, becoming seriously ill. He actually knew when he was going to die. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, which ended up being March 23rd, 1606. Apparently, it was Holy Thursday mm-hmm. at the age of 67. Mm-hmm. The following year, his body had to be moved because they were going to bury him there in Lima. They found it uncorrupt. The joints were flexible and his skin was still soft. Oh, wow. Every time I hear those, I know that's... That's a big thing when, you know, um, determining if somebody is holy. But every time I hear it, it still just shocks me every single time. St. Terebius, he was beatified in 1697. I'm sorry, 1679. Mm -hmm. 
and was canonized in 1726, becoming one of the first canonized saints of the Americas. Well, that's so cool. So St. Terribius of Mogrovejo is regarded as the patron saint of Lima, of Mm -hmm. Peru, of Latin American bishops, and most importantly, the patron saint of Native people's rights. Oh, that's so nice. Honestly, he was an activist. He was like a human human rights activist. Like before it was a thing. Before it <laughs> so was a cool. thing. Yeah. So that's my story. Wow. I like that one. I'm glad that you got curious about this name, got curious about this saint and shared that with us because that really, that was a nice one. I had no idea that that, that, exi- that story existed. As soon as I was doing my research, I was like, oh my God, I have to share this. This is monumental. I knew you were going to love it. And yeah, I'm really happy with this saint. I think it's really great. And I think he deserves more recognition. Like I had no idea who he was. And he's probably more recognized maybe in South America, especially in Peru. But mm-hmm. everyone should know about this saint. Well, thanks for sharing, Andrea. All right. I'm ready for some exorcisms. Exorcists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, buckle up. I hope you enjoy it. But uh, like I said, we are talking about Father Malachi Martin. Um, for his simplicity's sake, I'm probably just going to refer to him as like as Martin or Malachi. Which name do you prefer? I like Malachi. I personally like Malachi. Isn't that so much more fun to say? It is. And you never hear it either. So you don't. I want to hear it. Martin, not, not throwing any shade on any Martins out there because y'all are cool. I know a few. <laughs> but... Malachi, I never hear that name. I want to hear it some I, more. Yeah. Okay, then we're just going to call him Malachi moving forward. Father Malachi Martin was born in County Kerry in 1921 to John and Catherine Martin. So he was actually one of 10 children. But get this, he was the first one to get his education at Bolly Bal- Longford National School, Dublin's Belvedere College and then University College Dublin so he he really got his education um, I know he studied archaeology which is going to come into play in the future but in the 1960s he entered the Jesuit priesthood in Rome but unfortunately in 1964 he decided to renounce his vows um, and leave that order because he, he basically came to the conclusion that he didn't like the agreements in Vatican II. He felt like the church was just being too lenient and was caring more about like having power than saving people's souls. So essentially, to me, it sounds like he was just way more conservative than what the Catholic Church was doing at the time. Does that make I sense? I mean, the, the church has to change with the times. Yeah. Because as culture changes, too, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with being conservative, but mm-hmm. I don't know. This is just my personal view. There's times where cons- being super conservative is not always right. Exactly. I agree. I don't think so either. I think having like traditional values and traditions, you know, it's good. That's great. Awesome. Cool. Uh, but definitely you have to progress with the times. Um, and he was not OK with that. <laughs> so he did not like it. Uh, so he decided that he was just not going to deal with it. So he left 
he left Rome and moved to New York. Oh, because that's less progressive and more conservative. <laughs> okay, cool. Right? Yeah. Um, I know when I saw that too, I'm like, um, Malachi, I don't, I don't think you really thought that through. Because <laughs> yeah, he went to New York City. Um, so okay, when he when he got there, uh, he took on various different jobs. He mm-hmm. worked as a worked washing dishes. He drove a cab. Eventually, he settled into a career of being an author, uh, you know, writing and publishing lots and lots of books. Okay. He still held on to those conservative views that we were just talking about, and he really made that clear in his writing. He was a, a very uh, harsh critic of some of the things the church was doing, and he included that in his books. So, okay. now let's hop into 1976. So it's 1976. It's been... Three years since the movie The Exorcist was released. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. And every time I think of like like the 70s, I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's been about three years. And it's the movie itself has been building a really steady cult following. Mm-hmm. More and more people are getting interested in exorcisms, um, being curious about the occult, you know, what it, yeah, being curious about the occult, you know, what is possession, all of that. And this is when Malachi releases a book talking about five real life exorcisms that he witnessed and reports on. And he titles the book Hostage to the Devil, The Possession and Exorcism of Five Contemporary Americans. And this makes him an icon in this growing interest and frenzy around exorcisms. So Mm. we are going to talk about those exorcisms, some of those stories, and what made him such a prominent figure, especially, like I said, in like the late 20th century. Okay. Hit me with it. So his first exorcism. So now we're going to rewind just a little bit because it got to explain where he started. His first exorcism actually took place in like the 1950s. So like I mentioned before, he studied archaeology. So he was on a couple of tours and excavations in Egypt. And it was during one of those um, visits that he was working on a book called The Scribal of the Dead Sea Scrolls. When he was there, there was an exorcism that was happening. But unfortunately, the assistant to the exorcist passed out during the rite. Talk about inconvenient. I know, right? Like, 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 ma'am, sir, you cannot do that right now. <laughs> we kind of need you on board. So they, that person passed out and the exorcist was like, well, I need somebody to help me. You there come over and help me. And he called over Malachi and he assisted through the exorcism. So that was his first experience. Interesting. Oh, okay. That's a little. It seems really random. Like, I don't. Yeah, it's just, it seems very random, like it was he was just pulled into it, and I guess this was his calling, because he, he does, he continues to perform exorcisms for a very long time, throughout his whole life. So here are some of the other cases that are pretty famous. Um, these are also in that book that I mentioned, Hostage to the Devil, uh, which, by the way, that the Netflix documentary that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. that I just... I wanted to watch and I just wasn't able to watch it. Um, it's called Hostage to the Devil. So if you have a chance, listeners, 
try to find it, try to watch it. I know I am going to do everything in my power to try to find it and watch it too. If you find a, a version that's free that we can access, share it, please. Yes, please let us know. <laughs> we want to see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let us know. But yeah, so one of the cases that he covered in his book, uh, he called the rooster and the tortoise. So in this case, there was a psychology professor, and he named him Carl, who became possessed after he was reenacting a ritual that he saw himself perform in a dream. So essentially, Carl at home dreaming, and in his dream, he saw himself do like an old ritual. And Carl came to the conclusion that, oh, this ritual must have been something that happened in his previous life. So Carl decides that he's going to go to Aquilia, uh, Italy. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm so sorry if I'm not. But he went to Italy um, to perform this ritual. And when he was there, that is when he became possessed. So uh, there was a group of students that was with him. Like I said, he was a psychology professor. So there were some students and assistants that were there to document the event. And here's a quote by Malachi, which describes what the students witness. They say, And around the eyes, in a way of none of his associates and students could ever explain, there was what they had come to call the twist. Some crookedness, some wry misshapenness, as if the natural contours of skull, forehead, eyes, and ears had been splayed off kilter by some superhuman force residing in him temporarily with tremendous and awful power. So it's like his face was being twisted from the inside out? Yeah, well, it sounds like it's basically like his features were being distorted. So they were being splayed out as if, like, I just picture it kind of just being, like, sunken and, like, taut. You know what I mean? Ew, but still. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. But the way how you said twisted, I'm like... Yeah, they called it the twist. The twist. Oh my goodness. Ugh. Okay. I know. Sounds real spooky. Um, so that was one of the exorcisms that he performed. Unfortunately, I don't have more detail about, about this specific case. But that just kind of gives you a quick taste on what he was dealing with. A quick taste on the twist. Okay. A <laughs> quick taste on the twist. Um... So another case that he worked on, he calls the Virgin and the Girl Fixer. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, it's a it's a weird name. Honestly, the way he describes this case and what I'm going to be sharing with you guys in just a hot second. Um, let's just say it doesn't age well. The, the way he describes it um, is not correct. It's not politically correct and it's just not correct in general. But essentially, in this case... Him and an exorcist named Father Gregory. Uh, Father Gregory becomes attacked by a spirit who is possessing a transgender woman. And Malachi refers to to the possessed person as Richard slash Rita, um, which is not not great. Not great, Malachi. Don't do that. Um, you know, if they're a transgender woman, call them by their preferred name, which would be Rita. Mm -hmm. So, so that so that's a thing. But he provides a really vivid description of of the person um, dealing with the battle of this demon of afflicting them. And honestly, it, it sounds really terrifying. And this is a quote from, from him. So he writes, mm -hmm. The mouth opened, bearing gums and throat, 
the tongue protruded, quivering on a steam of gray, foaming bubbles. Mm -hmm. The whole face was furrowed in irregular lines as Richard slash Rita broke into peals of laughter. Great buffeting gusts of mocking, jeering laughter. Laughter pouring from a belly of amused scorn and contemptuous hate. So... So he's dealing with some real, uh, some real heavy, heavy uh, cases where people are just basically this in his books. He's making sure people are aware of the vivid awfulness of what possession is. And this is honestly what captures the fascination of Americans and the whole world when they're reading their, his books. Because like I said, there's this growing interest and yeah. he's providing this very vivid explanation of what it is to be an exorcist and to be witnessing the exorcisms. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a very good visual description, pronouns mm-hmm. and preferred name aside. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a an interesting visual and definitely captivates you. I won't lie. Yeah. In the late 1990s, there is what I guess they're referring to as an exorcism boom. Um, and this is according to an article published by Anna Mundro of the Irish Times, which, by the way, a lot of this information does come from the Irish Times, specifically an article written by Dean Rexton. It's called I Have Smelt the Breath of Satan, a story of County Kerry Exorcist. Mm, it's actually, a really great article. I was going to say I've heard that title before. Have you? Yes. Yeah, it's a really, really great article. So definitely credits out to uh, to Dean. Okay, so Anna Mundro of the Irish Times published this article on July 27th of 2002 and in this article, she's essentially explaining that this increase of possession and need for exorcism, it's rooted in cultural influences that were, you know, instead of it being, you know, religious influence, it's more of like a cultural influence that is leading to possession cases. And just like The Exorcist did, Martin's book in the 70s created more exorcism devotees let's call them that you know like people that are really just uh focusing and interested in just diving into exorcisms yeah as well as there being a lot of priests who are upset with the reforms from the second vatican council for essentially what they're saying is giving satan a free hand what yeah i know i feel like that's like a that's a large statement to make um but they're essentially saying you know in you know Vatican II, like they are, they made a lot of reforms that made Catholicism, let's say, like more lenient, like a little easier to approach. Well, they needed to get people to be able to approach. I know it needed to be approachable. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. But you know, according to them, like it's just by becoming more approachable, it's essentially lessening the spiritual strength behind behind our religion. And allowing gaps for Satan to slip through. We'll call it a matter of opinion. How's that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a matter of opinion. This is their opinion. And again, uh, Malachi writes this a lot in his books and is very, like, very staunch on misbelief. Like, he says that in churches and in parochial schools, they're avoiding talking about hell and talking about sin in order to avoid, like, guilt tripping people. I think we've already discussed that topic, (laughs) that we still had that. Um, Mm -hmm. We did not avoid talking about health. But I do think he he does have a point, though, because I I definitely think 
if you look at our our mom's education, for example, like the Catholic school she went to, they were a lot more strict than they were when we went to Catholic school. Uh, and even yes. for my for our mom, like that was after the um that Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council. So they were already reforms being being made. Um, so even if you're looking before that, I'm sure it was probably even more strict. But essentially, that is what some priests in Malachi are believing that that is what's leading to so much uh, possession, as well as the cultural influences that are being part of it. And according to Malachi, you know, during those those uh, those years in the 90s, he was saying that you know 800 to 1300 major exorcisms were being performed annually. So ones that would require like multiple sessions that were you know extreme cases i mean we'll just have to go with his word for it because we have no way of proving or disproving that because unfortunately a lot of that information is not made public no exactly it's it's not and it's so according to him and we'll, like you said we'll take his words but that's what what they were experiencing in the 90s and something also that we need to remember is that during this time yes exorcisms are on the rise um, there's more cases of possession there's more interest in this which also brings on like if you're interested in the devil and what these things are it kind of opens you up anyways so there's a lot of things going on a lot of things that are requiring exorcists to be doing their job right something that mm -hmm. we need to remember is that when an exorcist is performing the rites, he is always in danger. You know, he's essentially offering himself up as a hostage in order to save the soul of the afflicted, which is, again, where that name of hostage to the devil comes from. Yeah. That, unfortunately, leads us to his final case. Oh, I knew we were going there. I know. It's really, it's really sad. So the last case he took on was in 1999. He had heard of a young girl who was only four years old who was showing signs of possession. Oh, I know. So Mal uh, Malachi arrives to the Connecticut home of this little girl, and she walks up to him and says, So you're Malachi Martin, and you think you can help her? Oh, 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 okay. So that's straight off the, the demon or whoever is possessing her yeah. is like, Oh, you think you're going to save the day? Okay, great. Good luck. Yeah, immediately identifies him, immediately knows who he is, and basically challenging him, being like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> okay. I just got goosebumps all of a sudden. Like, I got chills running down my spine. That is so... Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. It's it's spooky. And um, so after he encountered the girl and uh, starts performing an exorcism on her, when he leaves, he takes... A sudden and fatal fall and he suffers from a, a brain injury that leads to his death what according to his friend who is also a, an ex-cia member robert marrow who was also there with him like he took uh malachi to this girl's home he believes and he says malachi was pushed to death he was pushed by an invisible force likely the the spirit that was possessing the little girl and that is what killed him. He strongly stands behind that. And friends and supporters also agree. They believe that Malachi was essentially targeted by the devil using this little girl as bait to permanently put an end 
to what Malachi was doing. You know, he was multiple times when I'm reading about him, they refer to him as a war warrior for Christ and the devil didn't want that. So there's a lot of belief that it was because of that exorcism that he was performing that that is what caused his death. Wow. Wait, wait, let's repeat real quick. Mm -hmm. You said he managed to exercise the girl like he liberated he her. Or no. I don't know if he like completely finished the exorcism. I know that he had performed an exorcism. I don't know if that completely liberated her. But after that encounter, that is when he was invisibly pushed and fell down and injured his head. Ugh, that really sucks. Yeah. It's, it's strange. And it's kind of like, I can understand why some people might say like, okay, that's a stretch. But if you think about it, he's been performing, you know, hundreds of exorcisms he's writing all these books and he's being an advocate for fighting against the devil and fighting against these evil spirits and demons that are possessing people and there is you know a, a proven increase in cases that this is happening it's coming more more predominant and he's saying he's acting as a warrior to stop it so like you said he's been he's bringing attention to it and what is something that you and I have said on multiple occasions, mm -hmm. the devil doesn't want you to bring attention to that. Yeah. Like a robber doesn't want you to know that he's in your home, right? He's going to do yeah. anything he can to silence the alarms. So that's basically the, the thought process behind that. Honest to God, that is the perfect, mm -hmm. what's the word, analogy? Yeah. Oh my God. Perfect. <laughs> so, um, so that is the story of Father Malachi Martin. Um, real quick, I do just want to break down what the stages of possession are. And this is this is according to uh, Malachi. He wrote this in, in one of his books, I believe, or maybe it was in an article or an interview that he had. But according to him, it, it comes down to four stages. The first stage is the actual entry of the evil spirit into an individual. And that entry is is done by a decision from the victim to allow that spirit in, no matter how small or tenuous that decision was, it was a decision made to let that in. The second is what he calls a stage of erroneous judgments by the possessed in vital matters, which lead to allowing the evil spirit to strengthen itself to the next stage. So essentially the way how I understand that is the, the person who is being afflicted starts like giving power or like mm -hmm. letting decisions go or making bad decisions that lead to that evil spirit becoming stronger. Does that make sense? Yeah. So stage one, you accidentally let them in. Stage mm -hmm. two, you just make more mistakes and just let them get stronger by your own decisions. Exactly. Like, so like an example that comes to mind for me is, you know, somebody is experiencing signs of possession and they decide to go to a psychic for help. And then that makes that spirit stronger because you're distancing yourself more away from God and you're like getting something more cult-ish. So that's the example that comes to mind for me, at least. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense because, again, divination, psychics, that's something we've already kind of talked about. Yeah, something you're not supposed to do, really. Yeah. But yeah, so the third stage is voluntarily yielding control over to that entity to that spirit that is not yourself so you are 
losing control of your will, decision, and action, and you're letting that power go to the evil spirit. And then the fourth is, you know, once they reach that third stage, that evil spirit is just going to continue to extend its control and it can reach to the point of perfect possession. So once you give it a bit of control, like you give it an inch, it's going to take a mile. This can all happen fairly quickly, or it could take years and years for all these stages to be completed. Um, and I think, Andrea, like you, you spoke about a case similar to that, where it, it took years and years for the, the person to become possessed. Like it started from little bits at a time, right? I think it was like one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, it was the farmhouse case uh, that was discussed when I talked about Father Vince Lampert. Yeah. Where it, it was years and years, and then it got to the point where she couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just, it, it can happen in so many different stages. And I think that's where it's important to have like a strong spiritual foundation. Cause like your faith is, is like a wall, you know, it's, it's your fortress. And when you leave cracks or you, you let things in, that's where problems can happen. So, so I just wanted to, to share that little piece of, of knowledge, something to keep in your back pocket, but this has this was the story of Father Malachi Martin, the exorcisms that he witnessed, and unfortunately, his his very tragic and um, sudden end. It's sad that it happened, but also still at the same time, it's like it's a good reminder there's evil out in this world. Yeah, and it has influence. Like it, his supporters and his friend, they they believe he was essentially killed by by the devil and by these evil spirits. So yeah. It's it has power, so it's good to recognize that. Um, so yes, yes, definitely. So now I'm gonna you know chill here at home and be very spooked. <laughs> which is hold on to Momo just a little tighter. Yeah, I'm gonna hold on to my cats just a little tighter and keep them next to me. He's he's already run away. Like he left me alone, so now I'm real scared. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed our stories. Um, please please feel free to follow us on our social media. You can find us at HIB Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and if you have any suggestions, any stories, or if you just want to send us an email, you can reach us at hearingisbelievingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That'll really help us out in the future. We'd really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So I think think now yeah that concludes everything thank you for tuning in for another episode and we will talk to you guys next week bye Bye.